Well, again, good morning. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know me, my name is James. Um, I serve as one of the pastors here at Freedom Village. Honor and privilege, as always, to be here with you, worshiping King Jesus together. Um, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I hope that you do. Uh, but if you don't, there should be one maybe in the, a seat pocket in front of you somewhere. You can grab that and turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. In our world, uh, there are a lot of opinions that exist about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people believe that he was a man who believed that he was God. Uh, some people believe that he was a moral teacher. Others believe him to be a great advocate for social issues, um, looking after the poor, uh, at that time an advocate for women. Many uh, in our world just don't know him, or perhaps they've never even really thought about Jesus at all because they don't, they don't care. And for those of us who know Jesus, who believe in Jesus, this is a sad reality, isn't it? Because what we believe is that even a very simple understanding of who Jesus is and what he did is enough to be saved. It's enough to, be, uh, to attain of true joy and what we know to be eternal life. A correct understanding of who Jesus is underlines saving faith. Knowing Jesus is necessary to be in a relationship with the God who created us and who created all things. And so John, our, our author, one of the followers of Jesus, John, knowing this, writes this letter to us, this gospel, with the aim of making Jesus known. He sets out to answer the all-important question, who is Jesus Christ? Because if we get that right, we get everything else in life right. Well, as we've made our way through the first six chapters of John's gospel, we've seen Jesus being revealed to us little by little, layer by layer. Uh, text by text, we are gaining a deeper understanding of who this Jesus was and is. And that certainly continues as we open up John chapter 7. You see, this question, can this be the Christ, is really the dominant theme and question that hangs over this next section of John that we're about to enter into today. Can this be the Christ? People want to know, is this Jesus who has, who has come to us, this guy who's been going around Israel, teaching people, performing these miracles in front of us, can this really be the Messiah? Is it him? Everyone wants to know. And at this point in John, here is where we are in the story. Chapters 7, 8, and 9 all take place during what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths. And if you're not familiar with this festival, you really need to be, okay? Particularly if you're going to be uh, understanding what's going to happen over the next six weeks that we're in John together. Uh, but from section, you know, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, you have to understand the context of this feast, See, we, we leave chapter 6, and at that time, we know we're leaving Passover. 
And now we open up and it's one verse later and it's actually six months later during this new feast. And by the way, in John, we are now roughly six months away from his crucifixion as well, okay, as we start chapter seven. So keep that in mind as we enter into the text. We're six months from, away from Passover, that passed. We're six months from the crucifixion. Within this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's really a double purpose for the Jews to come together and celebrate. The first reason they would come together for this festival was to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they literally lived in these booths, okay, or what we would think of as tents. They would come together and rejoice for God's faithfulness and his provision, and particularly they would worship him for the harvest season that had just taken place. Particularly in that time, this is September, October, um, they were celebrating the grape harvest, the vineyards, and the olives, okay? But this festival also, also took place for them to look forward to a new exodus, a time when the kingdom of God would be brought in, and God would gather up a harvest, right, a people for himself to dwell with him forever. And within this festival, two other things we got to know. There were also two major ceremonies that take place. This still takes place today, by the way. And those ceremonies centered around the theme of water and the theme of light. And once again, they did these ceremonies to recall God's provision how he provided for them miraculously in the desert. You know the story. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks, but how you know, they, Moses strikes a rock and, and water flows from it. So they're getting together to celebrate how they're in the desert, there's no water, and now they're overflowing with water. On top of that, they're coming together to celebrate how God faithfully led them through the desert for 40 years. And he did this in a depiction of himself, and we're told it's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, representing his presence, leading them. And so they get together to remember these two things, the provision of water, the provision of himself in a cloud, in fire. And so this, now as we're getting into chapter 7, this is the time in the season that we are in. It's roughly mid-September, runs itself through mid-October, this really festive, exciting time for the Jews. In fact, most scholars say you haven't been to Israel if you haven't been during the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? This is when you should be there. It's just that exciting. All this energy, good food, good music, right? There's trumpets blasting, people are shouting, right? The high priest is entering the Holy of Holies during this season, and Jerusalem would just be packed, packed, it still is, packed with people because every Jewish male is required to make their way to Jerusalem to be there for this. You have to be there if you're able. If you're physically able, there's not like a death in your family, you have to be there for this festival. So this is a really big deal. And it's a perfect time and place for Jesus to reveal himself a little bit more. And boy, is he going to do that. <laughs> um, over the next several weeks that we have together, we're going to see Jesus say these incredible things like, I am the living water, to a people who are 
celebrating God's provision of water. He'll say, I'm the living water. He'll say, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He'll turn around after that during their lighting ceremony when they're celebrating God's provision of fire by night, and he'll say, I am the light of the world. He'll say, only through me can you truly see. The blind eyes are open because of me. So that's where we're headed over the next three chapters in John's gospel. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, and so we're just going to start with the beginning of chapter 7. As we open up this first part of chapter 7 here, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to us, if you've been here through the duration of this series, that we continue to see a mixed reaction to Jesus. Again, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. Again, picture the scene. Everyone is at this feast gathered together. They're celebrating. They're worshiping. There's a big buzz about the city. There's excitement around the festival and the food. But then added to that, there's a new aspect to this gathering. That people are talking about this guy named Jesus. Some have seen him. Some have heard him. Some have heard rumors about him. And they're talking about what they heard and what they saw. This news about Jesus continues to spread. And what we're going to see right from the beginning of this section is that amongst all the noise about Jesus, there are a lot of wrong views about Jesus. And that's really going to be our focus today. Wrong ideas about Jesus. It's a negative Sunday, okay? But beyond that, I want to I just say, like, why is it worth talking about the wrong views? Shouldn't we talk about the right views? Well, it's worth our time to talk about the wrong views because, again, a correct understanding of who Jesus is underlines saving faith. It's because knowing Jesus rightly is our greatest aim. Knowing him is the goal of our lives. It's why the Apostle Paul, 25 years after he is saved, after his conversion, it's still his goal as well. He says, this is the purpose of my life. This is the aim of my life. It's this, he says, that I may know Christ, period. Knowing Christ is the goal. And so here we go. We're going to look at three wrong views of Jesus today. Three wrong views of Jesus, and we're going to see these highlighted amongst three groups of people. First, we're going to open up and and look at Jesus' own brothers, his physical blood brothers. Then we're going to look at the Jewish leaders of the day, and then we'll finish by considering the multitude and the crowd. So verse 1, here it is again. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So once again, here here we are. We see here at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is not now able to freely move around because of his enemies. He's got to be careful where he goes and when he goes, where he goes. And so for the time being, we're told that he chooses to stay in Galilee. He cannot go into Judea at this time, which is where he started, by the way. And then we see that this is the time of the Feast of Booths, or once again, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we've already discussed. And then in that time, in his season in Galilee, the Feast of Booths is upon them, and we read that his brothers speak up. 
and they have, let's say they have some advice for him about how he's going about his ministry, okay? So his brothers say to him this, leave here, Jesus, and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says, for even or not even his brothers believed in him. So it's through Jesus' brothers that we see the first wrong view of Jesus, and that's this. Jesus' brothers had a worldly view of him. Okay? If you're taking notes, that's our first point today. A worldly view of him. Jesus' brothers had a worldly view of him. I think it's interesting to take note, particularly because some of us are from a, a background that didn't teach this. I think it's interesting to take note that Jesus had brothers. And that means physical brothers. It means, okay, it means that Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. And by the way, we see this recorded in the other Gospels as well. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's also in Luke. And we know a few of those brothers' names, don't we? Like James, okay, for example. We studied his letter you know, a couple years ago. Uh, or his brother named Jude, for example. Both of those brothers wrote letters that are found in the New Testament. But even though they are brothers of Jesus, we see at this point in their life they don't believe in Jesus. Later on, we know that some of them will believe. Some of them might not have. But at this point, they do not. None of them believe. And it's not that they don't believe that Jesus like, can't do miracles or that he can't. They believe that. They know he can do miracles. They know he's a good teacher. The point is that they don't have authentic faith. They don't truly know Jesus, why he came, what he came for. Okay? And so in light of that, they're saying to Jesus, they can't understand why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Why are you staying here in this small area, right? this small town? Why don't you go to the big city, get some more recognition? And besides, here in Galilee, they know that in Galilee, people have been leaving Jesus like in droves. The masses have gone away from him. And so you know, we saw that in, last week in John 6. And so now they're saying, why don't you move on from here and make yourself known in Jerusalem, the big city. Grow your following. Do these miracles that you've been doing in public where it really counts is what they're saying. Where all the important people are. Where all the important places are. Now, if you study this text extensively, um, you could try to go through a number of different reasons why his brothers would say this. And the, the honest answer is, we don't know exactly the motivation for Jesus' brothers making these comments. Some say that his brothers were actually being sarcastic here, that they were actually ridiculing Jesus by these world words. Like, oh, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you go do this in Jerusalem where people will, like there's more religious people, you know, more religious leaders, and then you'll be exposed. Right? Others believe, and I think this is getting closer, Others believe that they're saying these words out of family shame. See, 
you have to understand, you know, the family unit's so close back in those days. Jesus is representing the family as the oldest kid. And so here are these other younger brothers who know, gosh, our, our name and reputation isn't the greatest right now. All these people are going around saying our brother's like telling them to eat flesh and drink blood and making our name not the greatest. He's not as popular as he once was. And so they want him to go to Jerusalem to restore his reputation, to restore the family name. I think there's some of that in here. But more than that, my opinion is that Jesus' brothers probably just saw Jesus the same way as the multitude saw him in John chapter 6. That they believed Jesus or thought Jesus should be this political messiah who would deliver Israel from the Roman Empire. And to do that meant being in Jerusalem with the masses, not in these obscure villages and towns of Galilee. And so here they are. They haven't turned away and left Jesus like the multitude. They're still around him. But they are still missing Jesus. They're still misunderstanding Jesus' mission and his purpose. In fact, it's interesting to note that the brother's advice here to Jesus is actually extremely similar to the temptation that Satan put before Jesus. Remember, Satan said to Jesus in the 40 days in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, if you are who you said you are, which you are, we all know this, right? This is Satan's in his ear. He says, why don't you go to the top of the temple and jump off and let the angels pick you up and, and rescue you so that everyone will be marveling at you. They'll be astonished by you. Everyone will bow down to you. And notice again what the brothers are saying here. Hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Why don't you do your miracles there so that everyone will follow you, so that everyone will bow down to you? It's the same idea, right? It's actually a worldly perspective. And it's wrong. And so the bottom line is, they don't believe because they misunderstand the type of Messiah that Jesus is and was. They didn't realize that Jesus was going to be unpopular. They didn't realize that, that Jesus wasn't meant to be lifted up as an A-list celebrity, but rather he was meant to be lifted up as the crucified Savior. They missed it. They missed Jesus, their own brother. They misunderstand him. Right? They don't want a humble king. They don't want a Messiah who will die in public shame. They want a celebrity. They want a hero. They want their idea of a conqueror, and yet Jesus shows up and he's going to a cross. And they cannot wrap their minds around this. Most people couldn't. Just like the multitude in John chapter 6. So the brothers come to Jesus with this advice. And then Jesus replies to his brothers. And Jesus says this. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee 
But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, there is a whole lot that I could say in regards to God's plan versus our plan here, God's timing versus our timing, but I'll just keep it at this. What Jesus is simply saying in his reply to his brothers here is, my agenda and my plans are divine and yours are clearly human. And so right now he's saying, it's not my time. You guys have to go without me. So Jesus is telling his brothers, you don't understand what I'm here for. You don't understand my assignment. You don't understand what I'm doing. My schedule is not your schedule. And I want to say this as well. I think this is important to note because it can be a little confusing in the English that Jesus isn't lying to his brothers here. Because notice it says that Jesus says, I'm not going. And then two verses later he says, and then Jesus went. This isn't Jesus lying to his brothers here. The context, how it reads better in the original language, is Jesus simply saying, I'm not going with you in the way that you want me to go. I'm going, but I'm going on my own accord by the Father's will and the Father's plan, not with you and your will and your plan. You guys go, but I'm not moving until the Father tells me to go. So John is showing us here Jesus' firm resolve to do the Father's will, not the will of his unbelieving brothers, even if they meant well. Let's assume that they did. And let's not miss this sobering reality as well. I think there's some application here for us to take away. The sobering reality of this part of the text is, is this, that it's possible to be in close proximity to Jesus to know him as few others do, and yet, still, and yet still not truly believe in him. In other words, you can be around Jesus and still be lost. What, what I'm saying is, is that it's possible, put it in our context, it is very possible for you to show up to church services like this, week in, week out. You can have Christian friends, you can have been, grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents, but at the same time, you cannot be in the faith. It's possible. Your whole life can be surrounded by Christians and Christian things and you not be a Christian. I mean, think about this. These brothers shared a home, maybe a bunk bed with Jesus. This Jesus who never sinned. They grew up with him. Imagine that. Imagine what that would have been like. like right? Something bad happens in their house, and Mary's like, all right, who did it? I know it wasn't Jesus. Right? Which one of you guys did it? Who stole the hummus? Jude, was it you? Jane, right? You can imagine. It was not Jesus. Right? He's perfect. Man, that'd be so annoying. Could you imagine as a kid? Right? Trying to blame it on him. He just look at you peacefully. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Is that wrong to say? I'd be annoyed with Jesus. Is that, is that wrong to say? I don't know. As a kid's perspective, do you imagine? They grew up with this guy. They know Jesus. And yet here they are with Jesus, and they do not believe. And so let me ask you today, is that you? 
Are you around Jesus all the time, but don't believe? Have you misunderstood or missed the true Jesus? Do you know him? Because there was a time when even his brothers did not know him. So that's the first view of Jesus that we see in this text. It's a wrong one, a worldly view. The second view I want us to consider comes out of the Jewish leader's response to Jesus, which is a hostile view of Jesus. A hostile view of Jesus. I need to skip around a little bit in our text to show us this. But notice what John tells us about these Jewish leaders and in turn, Jesus' response to these leaders throughout this passage. I mean, again, once again, we've already read it, but how did this all start in this passage? What did we learn right from the beginning of John chapter 7? In verse 1, we read that the Jewish leaders were seeking Jesus, right? And why? Why were they seeking him? Not so that they could learn from him, not so that they could believe in him, but so that they could kill him. And Jesus is even going to confront them on that point later on in this chapter. He will actually ask them directly. I think it's in verse 20. Don't quote me on that. It's not my notes. I think it's verse 20. He says to them, why do you guys seek to kill me? He confronts them. Why are you trying to kill me? And in speaking, and in speaking to his brothers, we, we learn from Jesus that this is actually not a surprise to him. He wants to know the answer of why, but he's not surprised that they want to kill him. This is actually expected. Remember what what he said there. He said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that what? Its works are evil. He's saying, the world can't hate you guys, brothers, the crowd, the Jewish leaders. Why? He's saying, because you are of the world. You're on the same team. That's why the world doesn't hate you, because you're on the same team as the world. But the world hates me, like these Jewish leaders, because I'm not of this world. I'm different. And why do these leaders and the world hate Jesus? Why does our world hate Jesus? Why do these leaders of the day, why are they so hostile towards him, even seeking to kill him? Well, first of all, and I'll show you three reasons, First of all, there's a moral reason for this. They want to kill him for a moral reason. Notice again in verse 7, Jesus says, I testify that their works are evil. The point is, the point is, the world does not want their sin exposed. Nor do they want how they are living to be called sin. They don't want, the leaders did not want to live under authority. And so there was hatred of Jesus. You have to remember who these guys are. This is the top of society. They ran things. They made the laws in some regard. And now Jesus is calling them sinners. And they hated him for that. There's a moral reason. A second reason they wanted to kill him comes later, but it's a religious reason. There's a religious reason for this, hatred. See, Jesus, we know, was unlike the other religious teachers and leaders of the day. He did not receive training like the other rabbis. 
And Jesus valued life change over religious ritual and ceremony. That's what he came and that's what he for and what he cared about. I want to see life change, transformation, not religious ritual. And in that, what he was doing was messing around with the system that they had established. Which meant that they were at, he was, Jesus was actually threatening their power. Jesus was threatening their plans and their control over society. And that was just too much for them to handle. And then finally, there is just a simple belief reason for hating Jesus. Bottom line, these leaders hated Jesus because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. And they could not accept him or those claims. They expected a different king. They wanted a political savior. They wanted a savior of their own making, and so they didn't believe. They chose to look away from Jesus. And of course, in our world, in our world today, we know many hate Jesus and us Christians for the exact same reasons. Why? Because we threaten their control. We threaten the world's plans. We call what the world does sin and should. We should directly. We should be known for what we're for, but also for what we're against as followers of Jesus. We tell them that they need to change the way that they are living their lives. We teach the world that there is no one good, not one. There's no such thing as a good person without Jesus Christ. We confront that. And so, some hear about Jesus. They hear these claims and they hate him and they hate us just like the Jewish leaders here in John chapter 7. So you can have all these sorts of views of Jesus. You can have a worldly view of him. You can have a hostile view of him. Many do. And then there are others, number three, who have a confused view of him. A confused view of Jesus. I wrestled around with like four different words there. I landed on confused. It's the best I can do. You'll see what I mean by it. Some are simply just confused. What I mean by that is that their view isn't based on reason or logic, rationale. And we see this with the Jewish crowd that was around Jesus at the festival, the multitude. Look at verses 11 through 13. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. And there's a tag at the end. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we learn here that there is a lot of quiet chatter. Um, grumbling is another word. Muttering, we're told here, taking place. In other words, people are debating amongst themselves at this festival, who is this Jesus? And we see as well that they are not publicly asking this question. Not yet. Because of why? Why? They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were, they were afraid of what this might cost them, how it might affect their reputation to be talking about this controversial figure, Jesus Christ. 
And there were two main thoughts going around about Jesus. We see that in the text. And ironically, both of these thoughts are wrong. (laughs) So there's two camps. Some are going around saying, this guy, Jesus, he's a really good man. And that's where it stopped. And that's a really big problem. It's a big problem. Because, yes, Jesus was a good man. But he was far beyond that, right? John Stott, speaking on this passage, once wrote this. He said, If Jesus was not God in human flesh, his claims would have meant that he was not a good man, but a very self-centered man. You see, he was always talking about himself and telling people that they should believe in him as the only way to have eternal life. He claimed that the Old, Testament was, the Old Testament was written about him. He claimed to be the bread of life, who could satisfy the hunger of all who come to him. He claimed that whoever believes in him would have rivers of flowing water, flowing from his innermost being. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that before Abraham was, that he existed. No good man who was not God in human flesh could say such things without being considered a deluded megalomaniac. What does that mean? It means someone drunk with their own power. Someone fixated on themselves. Self-centered. No one would say the things that Jesus said without being an egomaniac. Or a lunatic. Or God. So you see how it's a, it's a problem to claim that Jesus was just a good man, right? It, it's actually a real problem because of the fact that Jesus never claimed to be a good man. He never himself claimed to be a good teacher. He was going around teaching people that he was God, that he was their king, that he was the Messiah. So you see how it's a confused view of Jesus and what he said, to stop believing that he would, that stop believing at the point that he was just a good person. It actually makes no sense. It's nonsense to say those words. And then we see there's a second camp of people here who were saying that Jesus was actually leading people astray. And the people going around saying this were, were certainly the traditionalists of the day. This is coming from the people who thought their old ways of doing things were good enough. That the old ways of doing things were right. And they are standing so firm on that belief, all their tradition, to the point of calling Jesus a deceiver. It's the word there. A manipulator. It it comes from the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. It's it's blasphemous, right? It's, It's the worst of the worst. That's the word here. They're saying that Jesus has, has brought people off the path of truth and life. What an accusation. They're, they're saying that Jesus was deliberately leading people to believe in him all the time knowing that he was not truly the way to eternal life. Again, it's quite the serious accusation. And Jesus, by the way, will eventually suffer and die because of this view of him. This will become the overwhelming belief about him 
the religious leaders convince everybody of this. But, but we see that belief starting here, that seed of doubt, that seed of unbelief springs up here in John chapter 7 and carries on for the next six months to the cross. And again, we understand what brought people to these conclusions, right? In many ways, the, the crowd is no different than their leaders. Again, we have to keep in mind, it's so important to know the context of Scripture. Keep in mind, these people who are unbelieving, <laughs> doubting Jesus, calling him a deceiver, saying, oh, he's just a good man. These people have the scriptures available to them in full. They have heard Jesus' incredible teachings. They have seen the claims and the miracles with their own eyes that he's able to do and perform. He is doing things and saying things that only God could do and only God would say, and yet they too miss Jesus and misunderstand Jesus. And why? Why? Why do they not believe? And actually turning this back on us now, why do we tend to not believe? Even for those of us who know Jesus, what takes us into seasons and times of doubt and unbelief? Well, I think ultimately it's for the same reasons we see here. Two reasons why we don't have belief. Because Jesus confronts our sin, and we fear what belief in him will cost us. That's what we're seeing in the text. Again, we've already touched on this first point, but Jesus has made it clear that the world does not want to be confronted with their sin. We know this. The majority of our world does not want to turn away from their way of living, from what they think is best, for what they think is right, that's, by the way, determined from themselves. This is what I think is right. This is what I think is true. This is what I have determined for myself is good or because some YouTuber said it. Right? I'm going to live my life according to that pattern. Wise. And then you confront that, and there's offense. Great offense. Those people, they're not tolerant, right? You've heard this. The majority of our world does not want to be confronted in their sin. And this is, by the way, what we saw earlier on in John. In John chapter 3, verse 20, right? What did Jesus say there? He said this very directly. He said, For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See it. People do not want their life exposed. They do not want their sin to be called sin. And you see, to come to Jesus, to truly go to Jesus, you actually have to let him confront your sin. You have to turn from your ways of darkness and learn to walk in the light as he himself is the light. This is the gospel. And it's not an easy thing to do, is it? It's hard. It's uncomfortable. right? It is easier in many ways to just keep going our own way, which is what the crowd is doing here and so many of us tend to do as well. We do not want our sin confronted. We do not want to turn from ourselves. 
And beyond that, we also see in this text this, this fear, don't we? I wrestled with this a lot this week, this part. This fear in this text, because the truth is, what we're finding here is that there are so many who simply do not believe in Jesus, explore Jesus, get to know Jesus, because the cost is too much. The risk seems to be too high, because there's a lot that's required to give up to follow him. For the crowd that day, listen, they knew this very clearly. They knew that if they chose to follow Jesus and believe in him as the Savior and the King, it would potentially mean having their family and their friends turn on them. They knew that. It meant having the religious leaders be against them and look down upon them. It would likely lead to them losing their position in society and maybe even the ability to go to the temple. By the way, we know that's what happened to Christians later on throughout Rome. They lost their social security. They lost their retirement. They could not go into public uh, government offices anymore because of Jesus. That's the cost sometimes. And for the people, it's too much. That's too much. And so they say no to Jesus. And of course, it's the same for so many today. It's the same. We say, even those of us who have, who've heard the truth again and again, we say things like, well, if I, if I follow Jesus the way he wants me to, and do the things that he's asked me to, what will people think of me? What if I lose family over this? What if I lose friendships over this? How many times I've heard, I can't tell my friends about the gospel. Why? Because we might break the relationship. Oh, God, shame on us. Shame on us. Right? What if I'm left isolated? What if I'm, I'm left all alone? What if I lose my status? What if I lose my reputation at work? What if I get isolated from my workplace? What if I, what if I have to get another job because I'm, I'm outwardly following Christ there? See, the world considers these things, and in the end, they find it easier and better to say no to the real Jesus. That's what the world does. They believe it's easy and better to believe in a wrong view of him. And sometimes we're right there with them. But again, listen now. Listen. This is serious. A wrong view of Jesus will leave you outside of his grace. Listen, a, a moral view of Jesus does not get you included into his plan. It does not. Jesus told his brothers that day that his mission involved exposing sin and dying for sinners. That's why he came. And people didn't like that about him. They didn't like that message, and they rejected him because of it. And hear me, 
that would, listen, that would be a very difficult message to swallow if that was the end. If all there was was us being left exposed in our sin, knowing that we're sinful without an answer, I might personally reject that message as well. But that's not the end. It's not the end. You see, the good news of the gospel is that, yes, Jesus, oh boy, does he expose and confront our sin. But then he actually goes on and does something about it. Like a good doctor, Jesus exposes the problem, but then he gives us the cure. He gives us himself. He gives us the cross. See, through John's gospel, we are getting to know this Jesus more and more, layer by layer, text by text. And what we are seeing time and time again is that this Jesus was not the Savior that people expected. He was not the Savior that people wanted, but he was the Savior that the world needed. And so today, what's your view of Jesus? How do you see him today? Listen, are are you here today and you're familiar with Jesus? You know all the jargon, you know the routine, but like his brothers, you don't really know him? Do you follow the Jesus who confronts your sin so that you can forsake that sin and walk in the light? Is that your Jesus today? Does your life look different from your unbelieving friends and your unbelieving coworkers, or does your version of following Jesus mimic a lot of the ways that the world lives? Listen, a a correct understanding of who Jesus is underlines saving faith. That's the bottom line today. Your view of him matters. And how you live your life exposes your view of him. A correct understanding of who Jesus is underlines saving faith. Knowing Jesus, having the right view of Jesus is necessary to be in a relationship with him. So the invitation today is simple. The invitation today is to know this Jesus. Know him from the scriptures. Know the Jesus of the scriptures and reject the world's view of him. Amen? Let me pray for you. I'll ask the praise team to come again and join me.